Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Every day. Welcome to Master the NEC, where we talk about the National Electrical Code and all things electrically related. My name is Paul Abernathy, your host, and welcome to today's podcast. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Master the NEC, where we talk about the National Electrical Code and all things electrically related. My name is Paul Abernathy, your host, as always. Welcome to the podcast. So on today's episode, I got a request, and the request was to talk a little bit about electrical connections, terminations, and ratings, uh, and so basically 110.14. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Because I guess uh, to this listener, there's a little confusion when it comes to connections and, and the use of things like antioxide uh, inhibitors and all that kind of stuff. So they wanted to kind of have a little talk on that topic. Topic. So I figured that's what we do today. It's been a while since I have done a podcast because life just rolls on, my friends. It's just so much stuff going on. And... You know, we have so many new students that are coming into the Fast Tracks program, and again, they realize that while it's not a one-on-one with me every week, uh, like the old Ultimate Guide was, you still have access to me uh, and to anybody here uh, at any time through the app. So there's a lot of questions, and there's things like that 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 I spend a lot of time answering, and, and of course, I'm also editing some books and things like that that takes time. So anyway... Today, let's talk a little bit about electrical connections. Now, I'm going to read to you what the National Electrical Code says. And, of course, we're in the 2017 edition of the National Electrical Code. So we're talking electrical connections. Uh, We're talking about anywhere you might have splicing, any termination that might take place. Uh, We'll talk about things like temperature limitations. Because you have to remember, when we talk about this in the derating demystified video... There's weakest link components. I mean, your terminal is only as good as your conductor's insulation rating and their temperature rating. It's only as good as the device you're terminating to. And there's so many things that you have to take into consideration. Now, get look, being an electrician, it's not an easy job. That's why we all get paid the big bucks, right? I mean, actually, uh, it might be a kind of a funny tongue-in-cheek thing, but I did see a report that came out that stated that electricians were in such high demand over the next 10 to 15 years uh, that we've got so many kids and young adults being pushed into college, and there's nothing wrong with that. 
The problem is they sell them on this false hope that once you get out of college, that that job or that dream job is just going to be sitting there waiting for you, and it's really not. Um, you have to work at it. And, and so in my case, <clears throat> I went to school later, but when I got out of high school, look, I was ready to work, man. I was ready to make some money. And so I got latched on to the electrician or the electrical profession early on in, in high school, uh, thanks to my brother, of course, who was ahead of me in school a couple of years, and uh, uh, and I saw what you know how he loved it, and so that was the thing for me. Uh, but little did I know that it would give me many avenues. Now I've been working over thirty years in electrical business, from working with the hands in the field, in the trenches, to management roles, to whatever. I mean, head of some companies, head of codes and standards, uh, and, and I, for me, it was a transition into electrical code. Okay. So, but for others, it's you're still working in this every day. And one of the things that that in this profession that we have to run into is we have to remember that there are certain limitations that certain things have. Uh, products have certain limitations in how you can use them. Now, the National Electrical Code is a minimum safety standard. Okay, it's not an installation standard. It's not a guide for workmanship. Uh, it does give us parameters, and there are people that will argue that the NEC or the National Electrical Code is is growing to where it is more of a uh, uh, an instruction manual. Um, well, you know, that could be argued with anything, I guess. Uh, but it is a safety standard. It is put out by NFPA. It's actually written by individuals like yourself and, and all of us that serve on code panels who bring and try to compile this information together. Um, and it's really designed to make a, 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 the, the minimalist, safest, building or structure that we can and it still be considered safe for for people to use okay so today's topic again is electrical connections and i guess we have to understand some things about it so i'm going to actually read the code and then explain my own commentary as i normally do uh in some of the things that we read now if you have a 2017 national electrical code uh, it's going to be starting on page 45, but if you're in the PDF version, which I work in a lot, it starts on page 48, and it's 110.14, and it's called Electrical Connections. Now, there's probably some little tidbits in here that you're going to have never heard before uh, because you never really took the time to read it, but uh, it's it's uh, really a lot of information, and the funny thing is, as we talk about conductors later on in some of the episodes we do um, when you're dealing with impacities and 31015B16 and all this kind of stuff, you have to remember that all of this ties back to terminal limitations. So if you don't have a firm understanding of, of 110.14 and all it's about, then you're going to struggle and you're going to constantly struggle. Uh, it's so much so that even in the 110.14, we have in the 2017 code, we had a new installation requirement. Again, people say this, wait a minute, it's not an installation guide. I understand. But what it is, is it's giving you some torquing requirements. And granted, those change will, will be, you know, the evolution of that will change even more as in the 2020, the torquing part of it or the calibrated torquing part disappears, uh, the term calibrated. Uh, but again, this is not a, not a code change class. All right, so let's talk electrical connections. Because of the different characteristics of dissimilar metals, you know, copper and aluminum are dissimilar metals, 
Devices such as pressure terminals or pressure splicing connectors and soldering lugs shall be identified for the material of the conductor and shall be properly installed and used. So I have some devices that will tell us what type of conductors you can use. Okay, I have some switches, for example, that might say that it can only be used for solid conductors uh, because of the nature of how you terminate it. Uh, some might say you can use stranded. You might have some pressure terminals that uh, that are they're only going to be suitable for use with solid conductors. So you really need to know the device you're dealing with, and you really need to know whether or not you're taking an opportunity uh, to understand the devices and all the little situations and just don't take them for granted okay this is your trade this is your profession this is what you do for a living so you know anytime I grab a switch or device you don't take it for granted I look at it and I go okay let me look at some of the writing on here because things change okay manufacturers change things on products so assuming that I'm going to use the right the right conductor the the right terminals, the right device for what I'm doing. I'm just going to make sure that I'm that I'm doing it and I know that it's being installed and used properly. Now, it goes on to say conductors of dissimilar metals, again, copper and aluminum are dissimilar metals, shall not be intermixed in a terminal or splice connector where physical contact occurs between dissimilar conductors, again, such as copper and aluminum or copper and copper clad aluminum. Uh, a lot of people will say that copper and copper clad aluminum are the are similar metals, but that's not really true, although some would like to argue that. It's copper clad. It's still an aluminum conductor. Its ampacities are based on the aluminum column, okay, in, in 31015B16 under temperatures. It's on the aluminum side. Yes, it's copper clad, but it's still considered aluminum, okay? So you have to understand if you have copper and copper clad aluminum or aluminum and copper clad aluminum. Because again, if you're intermixing aluminum, and this is a copper clad aluminum product with a, a veneer, if you will, of copper, it's still an aluminum product, but it has copper on it. So putting them together, even though the copper clad aluminum falls theoretically in the aluminum column, you still have a potential for dissimilar metals. So you have to understand the devices that you choose. You have to understand that you need something that does not allow the physical, intimate contact between dissimilar metals. Okay? So how you do that, you look for the proper lug, a splice that is that is designed for multiple types of conductors. Uh, again, Polaris splices, uh, they, they, they're designed to be ALCU. Um, if you see AL7CU, then you know it's a 75 degree rated terminal. You see AL9CU, for example, it's a 90 degree rated terminal. Um, so it's important, and again, remembering that 90 doesn't mean you can use that conductor at 90 except for adjustment and corrections, but I think if you go watch our Derating Demystified video over on our YouTube channel, and you'll, you'll get a you'll get a broader understanding of that, a little bit better understanding of that. If that's any if that's confusing to you in any possible way, um, but let's move on because that's just the dissimilar of metals. Now, unless 
It says, okay, so you don't have some intimate contact or direct physical contact between the dissimilar metals or conductors unless the device is identified for the purpose and condition of use. So they do make devices that are designed for you to actually uh, place these conductors together. So you really have to remember that they they don't come together. They don't get intermixed at terminals or splicing connectors unless the device is actually identified for the purpose of and conditions of use. A, a great example, again, with a polar splice, which allows for aluminum and conductors. They go together. It's the same common lug. Okay. Then they're, you know, those type of concepts. All right. Now, the code also goes on to say materials such as solder, fluxes, inhibitors, and compounds where employed shall be suitable for use and shall be of the type that will not adversely affect the conductor, installation, or equipment. Now let's talk about this for a second because I get a lot of questions about this. So people say, and I get this from inspectors a lot, uh, they'll say that antioxidation inhibitors are required for aluminum conductors. Well, it's not required for aluminum conductors per se by the National Electrical Code. Uh, the manufacturers will dictate that. And typically under UL67, which again is the panel board uh, requirement from UL, that goes inside of cabinets, okay, where you plug your breakers into, for example, um, they're actually tested without, the aluminum conductors used in that are tested without any oxide inhibitor on it. So is it okay to use it? Do we recommend it? Does the Aluminum Association recommend the use of oxide inhibitors on aluminum conductors? Absolutely. The less oxygen that you can get to that termination, of course, you're going to torque it down properly, so it's going to reduce the amount of oxygen that gets to the terminal contact point. Uh, and you're going to do everything right, as I know you are, as that trained professional. Um, but you simply are buying yourself just a tad bit of potential insurance at a breakdown where oxidation can cause a problem. It creates a res higher resistance point uh, for current to flow, and it creates a hot spot. Um, but you know what? This could be said true also for copper conductors. But we don't always prepare copper conductors and actually treat them with an inhibitor. Um, but you could, and I always recommend it, if you use an inhibitor that's pretty neutral, in other words, it can be used for copper or aluminum. Back in the day, there were two different types. And so when we talk about the use of an inhibitor, you got to make sure that you use the right type that won't cause an adverse effect onto the conductors, for example. And back in the day, you could get inhibitor that was designed for aluminum conductors, and you could get inhibitor that was designed for copper conductors. And you didn't want to use the copper one on the aluminum. You didn't want to use aluminum on the copper because it sometimes tended to have small trace amounts of that primary product, aluminum or copper, in the material. Not so much probably for today's inhibitors, especially if they're just a universal type of inhibitor. Um, but just remember, it's not required. Now, that's not to say that you don't get a piece of equipment. That's why it's so important to read the legends on equipment. Don't take it for granted. Stop for a second. And if you're a master electrician or a journeyman and you're teaching an apprentice, make sure that they get into this mode where they don't take legends and don't take information on products for granted. It's there for a reason. Slow down and read it. You're going to find a lot of good information in there, whether or not you have lug limitations, conductor size limitations, temperature limitations built in by the manufacturer. All these things that you have to take into consideration that many people just kind of overlook. 
So teach your journeyman, teach your apprentice. Many masters need to remember that the reason this information is on the labels, the markings, the legends are there for a reason. Treat your profession as that, a true profession. Become skilled at your craft. Read everything and take nothing for granted. Okay. Now, when we talk about materials such as solder, uh, there's some occasions where we have uh, conductors, two copper conductors together, and you want to solder them together. Perfectly acceptable as long as you cover that solder joint with something that's equivalent. Uh, we tend to use wire binding devices like like uh, wire nuts, which is a trade name from for Ideals wire nut. Uh, but it's a it's kind of a wire binding device, like a wire a wing nut or something like that. Uh, but you know what? Back in the day, I soldered a lot of my connections. Now, here's a funny thing. Typically with a wire nut, again, that's a trade name by ideal. Um, but, you know, like those, 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 those wire binding devices that look like a nut here. Is that better? Keep me out of trouble. Uh, that actually, if you read the instructions, you don't pre-twist the conductors for that because it changes the actual OD of the, of the twist. And depending on the number you use, you could put it outside of the scope of what that nut can handle. Um, so they prefer you just to bring them all together and then let the wire binding device do the job. You know, okay. But if you're splicing, then you need to make sure that the splice is mechanically held together before you use the solder and before you make the. So again, that's a mechanical where you twist them. Uh, but if you're going to use a wire binding device, it's not necessary to do so. But I guess people do, and that's fine. Uh, but at the end of the day, solder can have a detrimental effect. Uh, and, and again, I solder a mini splice. In fact, if I was wiring a house today, it, uh, a lot of them, probably one in every four, I'd probably solder everything. Uh, just because it's a lost craft. And be honest with you, I can go around and do that a lot quicker and have a helper come back and tape them uh, much easier. Um, but anyway, it, it, it's kind of one of those things that kind of breaks up the monotony. Uh, you have fluxes and again inhibitors uh, and compounds because you could have anti uh, antioxidation compounds or oxide inhibitors. However they are, make sure you use the proper type. Uh, and you notice that it says where employed. So the code is not requiring it. It's saying where you choose to use it. It has to be one that doesn't have an adverse effect. Okay, it's not requiring you to use it. So I hear that a lot uh, where they say, well, it's aluminum. Um, when a manufacturer recommends it, it's simply a recommendation. It's not a requirement. If we wanted something to be done, we would tell you. Okay, uh, but it's highly recommended for both copper and aluminum, although most people seem to just seem to focus on the aluminum. Uh, the other thing to remember with conductors today with, with aluminum, uh, more often than not, we're using compact. And when you look at a compact conductor uh, in aluminum, and they do make it in copper, but very few people use compact copper because it's really unnecessary. All the little interstices are, are, are not really a big deal in copper because the conductors are already uh, smaller than aluminum for the same amount of, of ampacity. So all we're trying to do with aluminum is get as smaller conductors we can in a footprint so it doesn't increase our raceway fill requirements because it is compact. Okay, you get rid of all those voids. We call them interstices. Um, or some people say interstice, whatever. It's those little gaps, right, between the individual strands. And so at the end of the day, when you have a compact 
it's really you when you torque it properly and you treat it properly, you prepare it properly, it really replicates a solid conductor. Even though it does move, it's a trapezoid design uh, for the most part in what we, most manufacturers deal with with our compact. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's much better to work with, uh, but to each his own. Just remember that if the manufacturer of a piece of equipment that you're terminating to requires an oxide inhibitor on aluminum, then you would be required to use it. Okay, because that's what the lugs manufacturing required. Uh, but for the general application, no, it's not really required. Even though some inspectors might push it down your throat, um, and it's much easier to add it, and we highly recommend it. Um, the key here is to make sure that you prepare it, because aluminum oxidizes fairly quickly, creates that kind of a gray film on it. And you want to take a brush, a brass brush, and you just want to scrape it off, prepare it, clean it, get all that oxidation off, before you terminate it. If you want to put the oxide inhibitor on it to help preserve that termination right at the point where you're going to, going to torque it down, then feel free to do so. But it's not required unless the equipment states that. Now, it also goes on to say conductors and terminals for conductors more finely stranded than class B or class C stranding, as shown in chapter 9, table 10, shall be identified for the purpose... The, excuse me, identified for the specific, specific conductor class or classes. All right, so typical building wiring is going to be class B or class C. Uh, more often than not, it's going to be a class B, or it's going to be something that's not a class at all. For example, compact stranded um, is, is one thing, but you might even have what's called a 19-wire ASTM 787 class. And that's aluminum. I mean, excuse me, that's copper, but all the strands aren't exactly the same size. They, they're, they're the, there's, there's a large one, small one, large one, small one, large one, small one. So they alternate. Uh, and that's not really a class, but it's still acceptable for use in building wire. So all this rule right here just says, look, if you're going to move to something that's finely stranded and it's other than B and C, you know, then it needs to be, it shall be identified for the specific conductor class or classes. So the terminal, so that we know what we're terminating into. Um, so keep just keep that in mind if you're going to go that route. Most of the building wiring is, again, Class B or Class C. Uh, so let's move on to terminals. All right, A. Terminals is connection of conductors to terminal parts shall ensure a thoroughly good connection without damaging the conductors and shall be made by means of pressure connector and that includes a set screw type, that is a pressure connector, solder lugs or splices to flexible leads, uh, connection by means of wire binding screws or studs and nuts that have upturned lugs or the equivalent shall be permitted for 10 AWG or smaller conductors. Okay, so this is basically giving you some guidelines in your terminations that you want to make a good connection without damaging the conductor. And again, that's where the, the rules in 110.14D for torquing come in. Again, each terminal, each lug termination has a torquing value. This is not altogether new because we had 110.3B, which was said to install something in accordance with the manufacturer's instructions. The manufacturers of lugs have been giving you torquing values for years. Um, the manufacturers of equipment, in many cases on their legend, or their product information 
told you what to torque something at or that type of thing. So this is not new. This is basically just telling you, you know what, you need to make that connection. You need to do so. Now damage. Let's talk damage. If you over torque something, you compress it. And if you compress it um, too much, then you can affect the current carrying capacity of that conductor. If you under torque it, then you create a potential for arc as a high level of current flows through the conductor through that point and it tries to bridge over and you create a hot spot. So under torquing, over torquing, both can be equally problematic. So we have to think about and take the time to train our journeymen, train our apprentices that the weakest link, okay, is that termination, okay? In your tendons, in your ligaments, in your legs and arms, the weakest component is usually the point of attachment. That's what pulls away when you when you tear something. Okay, uh, not in all cases, obviously, but think of that concept. You must maintain that termination. So, making sure you make a good connection without damaging conductor is really important. You have to understand the connections to the terminals, whether you're soldering, you're splicing to flexible leads or whatever. Okay, think about those terminations. All right, all right. So, keeping that in mind, it also goes on to say terminals for more than one conductor and terminals used to connect aluminum shall be so identified. What are we talking about here? Well, I get this question a lot. How many conductors can I put in a lug? All right, all right. So, typically, when you're dealing with the grounded conductor or neutral, you're going to terminate one per lug. But in many of these panel enclosures, you're going to see that it allows you to have up to two equipment grounds, for example, per lug, provided they're the same size, so they torque adequately on both of them, because if there's two different sizes, it's kind of hard to torque down onto a 14 gauge if it's next to a 12 gauge or a 10 gauge, right? Makes sense? So they have to be the same size, but that's all going to be prescribed in that all-important legend that all-important product information sheet that's inside the piece of equipment. That's why you have to teach your people to read it, okay? And I find that a lot of errors that I see or pictures that are sent me about improper installations, I look at the pictures and I say, well, you know what? If they had just read the legend, they would have seen that you can't do that or that you could have up to two conductors for one equipment ground, for example. Uh, But those type of things, all right? Now, it's also important to realize that terminals where you have also connect to aluminum shall be identified for aluminum. So you have to make sure that they're either ALCU, maybe as a termination it's copper only, just has CU on it. Uh, make sure it's uh, you know, aluminum and copper or would give you. You need to make sure before you make that termination. Okay. Again, the weakest link is that termination not to be taken for granted. All right, so now let's talk about B, which is splices. And again, for those following along, we're at 110.14B, splices. So we've established our terminations. We see our rules for terminations. We understand about the use of inhibitors. Again, we're employed, not required, but very good to use, if you, you know, those type of things. The reliability is what we're going for. Let's talk splices. Now, splices, it says conductors shall be spliced or joined by splicing devices identified for the use, okay, so wire binding device, Polaris splices, uh, or polar splices, um, those type of things, they're identified for that application. That's what they're there for. 
Not something I just picked up and rigged up to make a splice, okay? These things are identified for it. But it also goes on to say, or by brazing, welding, or soldering with a fusible metal or alloy. Okay, so this is a CAD welding, for example, that allows you to make a connection, which is you know frequently done when we're dealing with grounding electrode systems and things like that, where we'll do CAD welding and what have you, okay? So uh, that's the concept of, of, of being able to make a splice using that mechanism. Now, it goes on to say, look, soldering splices shall first be spliced or joined so as to be mechanically and electrically secure without solder and then be soldered. So this is kind of what I was talking about before. So with the with the wire bonding device, you really don't pre-twist them, although everybody does. It's just a common practice. They're worried that they might pull loose. Um, but the devices are evaluated so that if that's done right and you use the right, for example, if the wire nut says that it can only handle three twelves, that you're not trying to jam four in there, uh, then, you, then you're okay, right? It, it should hold in place once you bind that thing down on there. And it, it really should. It should cut into that material. But if you're going to solder, again, you have to mechanically and electrically secure it without soldering. So that's where the twisting of the conductors came into play. And, of course, that's what we used to do. And because most of the things we used to do is solder, uh, the old school, and then what happened is, over time, you had these wire binding devices come out and whatnot, and so the, the common practice of twisting just never went away, even if the manufacturers of the wire binding devices, such as wire nuts, will tell you it's not, it, it's not required to do that or not necessary to do that. Okay. Anyway, that's kind of the history, how, how it came about. So, pre-twist them mechanically and electrically secure, and then you solder them, and again, People argue all the time that you can't solder, can't solder, and, and I'm like, sure you can. And in fact, B tells us next how we treat that solder joint. Here's what it goes on to say. It says, all splices and joints and their free ends of conductors shall be covered with an insulation equivalent to that of the conductors or with an identified insulating device. Okay. So again, covered with wire binding devices like a wire nut, that's an identified insulating device. Uh, tape of a certain number of wraps and thickness. Uh, many people can argue whether or not electrical tape is an insulation or not. Again, because if you damage a conductor, uh, the manufacturer of wiring cable, for example, will tell you if you lose insulation, electrical tape, okay, 3M, for example, electrical tape is not equivalent to insulation. Okay. Between me and you, it'll probably long outlive us. But as far as from a manufacturer standpoint, that's not putting insulation back onto a conductor. It's not. Um, so when you repair that, you're doing that generally at your at your own risk, not the manufacturer's risk. So most manufacturers of wire cable will give you a one year warranty anyway, and you're expecting this system to last a lot more than a year. So if you have the if you have the the feeling that that properly done terminate. Uh, a repair is going to long extend beyond a year, then really what does it matter what the manufacturer's warranty is because it really only extends to a year anyway. You're looking at longevity. Now, I'm of the old school. I always say wrap with rubber tape and then wrap with electric tape if that's the method you're going to do. Uh, so, again, to each his own. Uh, but in this case, we're just talking about wrap, putting back the covering that connection, okay? Whether it's soldered or or it's wire binding devices, whatever have you, whatever you're using at that time. 
Okay. Uh, next it says, wire connectors and splicing means installed on conductors for direct burial shall be listed for such use. Uh, we're talking about, one, it's a given that the conductors have to be listed for direct burial, like a USC-2 or maybe even a PV wire that's also USC-2. Uh, and uh, so that's getting direct buried. Uh, so you're making a splice in that. Uh, and so you want to make sure that the, the, the splicing device that you're using is also listed for that use, which is a wet location. Anything underground outside uh, is obviously going to be a wet location, as well as outside in general is going to be a wet location. Now, underneath a covered porch, it's going to be a damp location, but it could be a wet location depending on how the jurisdiction looks at it, right? All right, so I kind of covered the scope of the terminals and the splices. So now let's talk about terminal limitations. Uh, this is a provision that you really need to get to understand. And sadly, that comes at the end of this podcast, which is already 31 minutes long. But again, nevertheless, it's a topic that we need to, to talk about. Okay, so uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a part two, and I'm going to separate this out so that you don't have to listen to all of it if you don't want to. So uh, this is going to be end of part one, and we'll start part two here shortly. Every day the future's getting closer. Every day the future's looking bright. Every day is another beginning. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.